Bibles this morning, the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I was looking back on sermon notes over the years, uh, this past week or two. Uh, just curious how often and when was the last time we worked through the concept or idea of repentance before, how long has it been since we preached on that? And so, um, twice in the last decade, uh, really, worked through it, and the last time was a little over four years ago. And so I think it was timely uh, to come to 2 Corinthians 7 because repentance is such a central concept of the gospel and it really lies at the very core of the way we do relationships with one another. And so last week we spent our time, part one, biblically defining repentance so that we all are on the same page and really trying to make sure that we grasp the concept scripturally rather than culturally. And so we defined repentance biblically as the God-given response that sees sin rightly, feels sorrow over sin, and turns from sin to God. Now, I tried to rework that sentence a number of different ways, um, but the reality is repentance is really dealing with sin God's way. So I'm going to see it the way God sees it. I'm going to feel about it the way God feels about it. I'm going to turn from it the way God is separate from sin. And so it's really imaging God. It's It's being that kind of fruition of an image bearer, the imago Dei of God that we all have, and recognizing where sin is and what the problem is and how do I deal with it righteously. And so then at its core, it really is part of the gospel. We're reminded that Jesus called people to repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, Later, Peter will say, repent and be baptized. Uh, John the Baptist says, bring me fruits of repentance. In the Old Testament, It was a constant call to turn away from idols and turn to God. And all of this is repentance. But what we didn't deal with last week are the relational implications of this idea. We had to define it so that we understand the real healing that can take place. Um, And so, yes, in repentance, there's going to be confession from sin and uh, owning it, the reality of it being honest about it with God and with one another, uh, asking forgiveness of others, and then actual steps of change that lead to some kind of different living. You want to be constantly or progressively moving away from sin and becoming more and more like Christ, and repentance is a great way of demonstrating that and owning that reality as a believer. But the reality is it's really painful. Repentance is really hard. Now, as we learned last week, since it's from God, frankly, it's impossible apart from God. But it's really painful, and it's really, really difficult. It's, it's like you're at the start of a journey, and it already is bad. <laughs> and you know the whole trip is going to be bad, and it's only going to get worse before anything ever gets better. And your temptation into that moment is then why take the trip at all? If it's going to be that brutal, why even take the journey? A number of years ago, we were at... Uh, my parents' house, and I think it was Thanksgiving time. Uh, it's about a seven and a half hour trip. We left, and five minutes into the trip, one of my children demonstrates that they had a stomach bug. And so, you know, enough experience as parents, we know that means somebody's going to be throwing up about every 10 to 15 minutes for the next seven and a half hours. That's a miserable trip. And so there's a real part of you that doesn't even want to make that drive. You just want to turn around and go back. The last thing in the world you want to do is spend seven and a half hours in a car with sick children. 
But you also know that the end destination to be back home is far better than where you're at. There's no guarantee other children are not going to get sick or you as a parent. You, you really have no option but to push forward through the pain, increasing pain, before it's ever going to get better. And I want you to know that that's the way repentance is. I'm calling you to do something that I know is going to make life harder for you. As you deal with situations and relationships with God and with others, I'm full aware that repentance is going to hurt you more. You will be more miserable in the process than before. But I also want you to know that there is light on the other end, there is hope at the other end, and in fact, it is the only path forward, the only way forward to glorify God, to honor Him, and experience the healing and restoration that can take place. When we talk about Christ and salvation, we say things like the cross comes before the crown, or there's a crown of thorns before there's a crown of ruling. When we call people to salvation, we use the language that Jesus uses, where he said, take up your cross and follow me. And so we know that it's hard to follow Jesus, and, and yet we're telling people to do something very difficult and very painful, to turn from their sin, to trust Jesus, knowing full well living the Christian life is painful and it's hard. It opens you up to more rejection, not less of it. It opens up your life to more conflict, to more trials, not less of it. And yet we call people to that. And we call them because we know the hope in the gospel and in heaven itself is what really matters. One of the greatest lies that Satan can perpetuate to people is that the thorns and the cross can be skipped. That you can get from your sinful state to salvation and never walk through the valley of repentance. That you never have to experience carrying the cross. That you never have to take up on you the cross that God has for you. That you never have to join Christ as a suffering Savior and experience rejection. Even though Jesus said, they hate me, they're going to hate you too. And so Satan wants to perpetuate this lie that no, you actually don't have to go through that process. And one of the things we've seen with the Corinthians is they buy into that lie. They think all of Paul's sufferings and Paul's trials are just Paul's fault. And you can do the Christian life in such a way that there's no hurt. And it's a false gospel. That somehow you can work harder and you can just be a better person and you don't experience the humiliation and the humbling that takes place by admitting to God, you can't do it, you need him. Unfortunately, believers at times sees that same lie. And they believe that they can do relationships and restoration without all the pain of repentance. There's so many reasons for that. I don't know if you've ever, I know you've been in a position where you've been hurt by somebody. Uh, not too long ago, I'd experienced some very deep personal hurt from someone and a sense of betrayal. And, um, and, I, was, and I was in that wrestling moment between anger and just hurt, right? And and the person reached out and wanted to make things right. The last thing in the world I wanted to do was that meeting. Because the humiliation of having to admit you hurt me that deeply, and knowing that that meeting was just going to be more pain before there's ever any hope, was the last thing that I wanted to do. And I tried every way possible to convince myself I didn't need to have that meeting. But ultimately, became, because of the word and its authority, I'm convinced the only path forward when relationships are so damaged or hurt that deeply, is repentance and restoration. And so this morning, I want to call you to a better hope. 
I want to call you to the hope that lies on the other side of the dark valley of repentance. A hope that believes that I can do life vertically with God by owning my sin, confessing my sin, and receiving forgiveness from that sin, and then experience restored relationship with the Heavenly Father. And I want to call you to the same hope that can exist horizontally. That you can experience restoration through confession and the grace that comes with forgiveness and true loving God and others. I'm going to call you to a hope that these hard conversations are worth it. That, that while you go through the valley of the shadow of death, a good shepherd only leads you there because he's headed toward greener pastures. A hope that repentance matters because Jesus is better and the truth is better than a lie. And that deep, true relationships are way better than shallow, fake ones. The reality of the pain and sorrow of sin and how repentance seems to make it harder and difficult and darker. And so why even do it? Is a lie that the lost believe and it prevents them from salvation and it's the same lie that at times believers buy into that prevents them from true restored relationships. And so this morning, repentance is a journey. That biblically defined repentance is a journey to honor God in bringing healing to broken relationships. 2 Corinthians 7, let's follow along in your Bibles as I read verses 9 through the first half of verse 13. And we're just going to walk through relationally, how do I actually live this out? Paul writing to the Corinthians, this church that's hurt him so deeply, he says this, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved or weeping sorrowful, um, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. We're going to walk through it this way, and we're going to consider that repentance is a journey. And the very first question we want to ask is, how do I walk this road? How do I actually get from point A to point B? How do I move from broken relationships, uh, whether this is vertical with God or horizontal with others, and and, and just to be very clear, you can never have broken horizontal relationships as a result of sin that have not also broken your relationship vertically. And, and almost always, almost universally, I'm, I'm trying to give as close as I can, 99% of the time, if you have broken relationship vertically, you're going to end up messing with somebody horizontally, right? So it really becomes a 360-degree look at it. Well, how do you actually do this, and how do we walk this road? And, and specifically in the context here, this is relational. There's relational brokenness, right? Um, Paul started the church, spent 18 months with Corinth, uh, preached to them, taught to them. And one of the things he had taught them was if you have Christians, people who claim Jesus, and they're in your church, and they're living in an immoral, unrepentant way, um, and that immorality can take all kinds of forms. And when we use the word immorality, we don't only mean sexual immorality, uh, but it's immoral to be a liar. It's immoral to be a thief. It's, a, it's, it's immoral to be an abuser of others. It's immoral to be ruled by your anger. He says, if you have somebody in your midst and they say, I'm a follower of Jesus, 
but they live in this immorality unrepentantly. They're not turning from it. He says you, you can't have anything to do with them because it destroys the gospel. Because the gospel says when Jesus comes and you put your faith and trust in him, he radically changes you, and then there's a lifestyle of ongoing change. So you don't get to say, oh, I know and love Jesus and keep living however you want to live. He taught them that when he was there. Well, then there's a guy in the church, and the guy is living immorally, and he won't repent. And so Paul writes to them and says, 1 Corinthians, you need to discipline the guy out of the church. They say, no, we're not going to do that. You see, because we love too much like Jesus loves. Jesus would never reject him. Jesus would never kick him out. We're not going to kick him out either. They come up with all these justifying reasons. They're, they're wildly wrong. So Paul's like, okay. So Paul comes and visits them. And when he comes to visit them, things go bad. It gets really ugly. There's a really ugly business meeting, apparently. This guy is still in the church. He's also apparently very wealthy. Uh, he stands up, and he begins to falsely accuse Paul. You're just on a power trip, Paul. This is all about you. You want more money. You want control. You want authority. This is an abuse of your apostolic office. You suffer because of your own problem. And frankly, you don't preach well. You don't teach well. You're physically infirm, and you're ugly. All that's in there. Nobody wants to defend Paul. Nobody stands up. Paul's deeply wounded, deeply hurt, obviously so. He leaves. So he sends Titus back with a, what he calls this letter. And it's a letter he describes here that was going to cause them grief. Now what's interesting is we read through those verses, Paul tells us his motive. He says, I didn't do this for the one who caused the sin, that rich guy yelling at him. I didn't even do it for the one who was offended, me. I did it for you. Paul saw a bigger problem in the life of the church, and it was their failure to comprehend holiness and righteousness. And so he's done all this, and he's calling them back to relational reconciliation because of sin. How do we do it? Well, we don't, what's, I think one of the mysteries is we don't have Paul's severe letter. We don't have that letter he sent with Titus. Now, there's a real part of me that wishes I had that letter. Because if I had that letter, I would imitate it every time I got to deal with somebody. I would teach you this is how you use it. But God, in his wisdom and sovereignty, didn't give that to us. I think he didn't give it to us. One of the reasons, Steve's opinion time, so this is like, eh, well, maybe this is an authoritative. My gut, why wouldn't he give it to us? Because of the reason I just gave. I think you'd always want to imitate that method. I think you'd always want to match Paul's language. I think we'd, we'd try, and maybe it's not what we should always do or how we should always communicate. There's an authority structure here because we've got apostle and church that maybe that's not how we should deal with it when we deal with, with children or with parents or with spouses or with neighbors or with friends or with coworkers or with other people we do church with. Having said that, though, there is a biblical approach with how you walk this road. And so I want to give you some parameters. First of all, you need to understand that when you walk into the, into the valley of dealing with repentance, where there's relational hurt, you need to have a sorrow and a kindness approach. I think the great illustration of that is the prodigal son. And you see it in verses 9 and 10. Paul says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, sorrowful, weeping, but because you were grieved into repentance. And just a quick reminder, someone can even be crying over their sin, not just because they got caught, but crying, they're sad they did it, they hate that they do it, they despise they did it, they're weeping over doing it. That's still not the same as repentance. That grief's got to land somewhere, and that grief is either going to land with biblical repentance or uh, an ongoing uh, sinfulness that leads to death. It's cyclical or, or progressive growth. It, he says it's going to be one or the other. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were sorrowful, grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so you suffered no loss through us. Godly grief 
produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Listen, you're never, you're never going to have a conversation about repentance that's not going to include sorrow. It's going to hurt. The, the frequently, there's going to be tears. There's just going to be a heaviness in that conversation. And there's no one, I don't think, that pictures this any better. Uh, there's multiple illustrations we could look in the Bible, but then the prodigal son. The prodigal son goes to his dad, wealthy dad, says, give me my inheritance, gets his inheritance, runs away, views his father as controlling, manipulative, domineering. Uh, he says, let me just have my freedom. He's lived a life of restriction. I want a life of freedom. Goes away to a faraway land, um, probably so he can do whatever he wants to do, maybe out of some sense. I don't want to embarrass my dad. Who knows? Um, but, but he gets out there, and he spends it on women and on partying until every dime is gone, everything's gone, uh, and he learns real quick, those kind of friends only want you because you can buy the next hit, the next party, you can, you can fund the next food, the next buffet, uh, and so now he's got nothing, um, and as he begins to cycle down, he ends up in a pig pen uh, as a Jewish boy, which is just shocking to their sensibilities, and he's feeding the pigs, and the pig food looks attractive to him. I was reminded again of how nasty pigs are. We were up in Maggie Valley, went to uh, this, this really cool place in Catalo- near Catalucci, and um, they had some pigs there. And I just remind again, the pig, man, it eats where it defecates. Like, it's just gross. It is a gross, I mean, bacon's good. Ribs are all right, but it's gross. And this man is so down in the dumps He's so starving, he's like, I'd eat his food. And, you, and he, he's hit in that moment with awareness, real perspective on who he is and what he's done, and sorrow happens. And you feel the weight of it. You feel this overwhelming sense of grief. When we walk into a conversation about sin, whether it's through sharing the gospel with a lost person, And so we've got to talk about their sin, their sin that separates them from God. Or whether we're talking about in relational context, someone has hurt us, they've sinned against us. Or maybe they've just even sinned against someone else, but God has called you into their life to help deal with them. When we walk into a conversation about sin, there's going to be sorrow. There's going to be talk of how this has hurt God, how it's hurt you, and how it's hurt the relationship. Having to humble yourself Having to have the humility to admit this person has wounded you deeply will prevent some of you from having this conversation. Just like I was tempted, the illustration I gave a few minutes ago, to not have that meeting. One of the things I've had to realize is even as I've been preaching through 2 Corinthians about being a broken vessel is all of us um, while God is healing us and growing us, we carry still experiences in who we are. And some of you can identify with the reality of, of, of some people where they say, I was hurt so deeply by this person, it just, to even have this conversation blows my mind because I'm having to admit how much their hurt and their sin against me has power over me. And I don't want to admit that. I feel a need to be tougher than that, to be stronger than that. I'm embarrassed. I feel a sense of shame at how much power their sin against me wields. And I don't want to have an honest conversation about sin because it's going to hurt more than where I'm at right now. 
And so sometimes we avoid it that way. Sometimes we avoid it because we just minimize our sin. We're the ones who sin against someone else. So we don't want to have a conversation about repentance because we want to pretend like what we did wasn't that big of a deal. Let me tell you something. You don't get to call the shot on how bad your sin was against somebody. You don't get to be the one to say, you're making a mountain out of the molehill of my sin. You don't get to do that. The offender does not get to be the determiner of that. You need an objective witness. And guess what the objective witness is? The Word of God. The reality is no matter how small your sin, my question is, did Jesus die for it? If you're the one who did it, it's big enough to deal with it. But sometimes we don't want to do that because we don't want to admit the things that we've done. Humbly entering a conversation where pain has happened, knowing full well the pain is going to be increased, how do we do that? It takes loving faith, but it is the road forward. But it's not just sorrow. God uses sorrow. It's very clear here that Paul says sorrow was part of the process that led to repentance, but there's also kindness. We can see that with the prodigal son. Because as he awakens in the pigsty, and the language that the, the Jesus uses as he tells that parable is just beautiful. It's literally like he comes to his senses, uh, like someone coming out of a deep sleep, a, a, a deep nap, and they just wake up, oh, oh, what's going on? You ever had one of those naps, you don't even know what day of the week it is? And you're like, oh, you come to your senses. This man comes to his senses about who his father really is. And he says, in my father's house, even the slaves eat better than I do. I'd rather, I'm, I'm not worthy to be a son. He has a right view of his sin. He has a right view of his identity. I'm, I'm not worth it. I don't have value as a son. I don't have a right as a son. But I could go back, and my dad is kind. And there is a kindness in God. And in Romans 2, 4, we're even told that God says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Listen, as you walk into these conversations, how do I walk this road? You walk this road knowing there's going to be sorrow, but with kindness. Here's what kindness says. Kindness, when you're dealing with relational hurt that needs to be reconciled, there needs to be repentance, kindness is a readiness to forgive and be restored to the person. It's a, it's a God-given willingness to extend mercy to someone who's hurt you deeply. Kindness reflects the gospel hope of forgiveness it's not forgiveness they deserve, just like you didn't deserve God's forgiveness. You cannot earn it, but God grants it out of his kindness. Paul demonstrates this. Paul demonstrated kindness. Even when he writes a severe letter, he demonstrates a kindness because the guy he gives a letter to, Titus, you might remember, he says he spoke hope of the Corinthians. He said he believed the best about the Corinthians. Um, he believed that they would respond. He believed that they would turn. He believed that they would treat Titus right. He believed that they would retake the offering that they quit taking because they were so selfish. Paul viewed them kindly. View the person who has hurt you kindly. These are hard things to say because I, I, there's a part of me would prefer saying these in the privacy of the counseling room because some of your hurt is so deep. You're like, that just, Steve, you don't understand the depth of hurt. And, and I just want to own the reality in this moment. I, I don't know. What I do know is this. I, I knew this. I know there's nothing that has been done to us that is worse than what I did to Christ.
I know that. And I know that I can be kind because God has first been kind to me. And so I call you to that truth. And so when you and I refuse to be kind, to be very clear with us, and I want to say this as directly as I can, but as tenderly as I can, when you and I refuse to show mercy and kindness, we are a people who are then shouting, God, I don't want your mercy or kindness. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We are merciful because we've received mercy. We are kind because we've received kindness. And so kindness, Paul demonstrates both the sorrow and the kindness in his approach. I want to call you on the dark, difficult valley road of repentance conversations to have both sorrow and kindness. But secondarily, is build some guardrails. On one side, you need humility. On the other side, you need patience. These are heart parameters for us. Be humble and be patient. Paul demonstrates humility by even being willing to investigate his own heart. They make false accusations about him. What do you do when someone is accusing you and, and you really think it's not true? And, and as a believer, that's very hard in that moment. Um, someone's saying things about you. Well, you're doing it for this. Here's your motive. This is what you're doing. This is how it's wrong. And you really don't think you're doing those things. You really think they're false accusations. They're even slanderous or lies about you. What do you do? Because the problem we all have is I know biblically I do a terrible job knowing my own heart. Jeremiah 17. Hebrews 3, I need other people confronting me. Ephesians 4, I need other people speaking the truth and love to me. Uh, Hebrews, I need other people helping to exhort me to live a life of godliness and good works. And, and so I do a terrible job. And so the reality is, is you walk as a humble Christian and someone is accusing you, even if they're false accusations, there should be enough humility in you and awareness in you to, to ask, what if it's true? Paul did that. Paul wasn't wrong in any of it. Paul hadn't made one misstep. He hadn't done one thing that they accused him of. Paul was still willing to go back and examine his conscience. He tells us that both in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians. He was willing to examine, and he said, I don't, basically, ultimately he came to this point, I think very little of your judgments. Because I've examined my conscience, as much as lies between me and God, I haven't done what you've accused me of. And then he goes and he puts a check on it. But listen, I even get that I could be wrong, God will judge me one day. Now let's get back. Because here's the truth of the matter. When you do it or I do it, and someone's confronting us about sin, and my reaction is to throw bombs back. You are not like Jesus in that moment. That ain't your time. You know, Sanford, zippeth the lippeth. Right? But we're tempted to do that, aren't you? Like, oh, you're going to hit me? Oh, with, oh, I'm about to float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. You're going to smack me? I got one right here for you. What about that time you said this last Tuesday? No, sir. It is time for you to humbly receive. And so in this moment, what Paul's willing to do is have this guardrail of humility. And he's willing to live a life of transparency and honesty. And he's willing to examine his own conscience. And so I think what would behoove you is to always have people in your life that you know love God, love his word, and know you well enough to confront you. 
hey, I just was talking to so-and-so. I was bringing a matter to them, and they just started dropping like some, some, some Nagasaki-level bombs on me. I don't, think, I don't think that that's what I did, but I need somebody to put a check on me. I got a couple guys in my life that'll do that. Darren's one of them. Got some friends. Got some friends in the church, different relational constructions that I have. I've got some friends outside the church. Man, somebody said this about me. I need you to help me think through it. And they ask tough, difficult, painful questions. And there's been times I've had people say, you know what? I don't like how they said it, but I think there's a grain of truth there. This is what I see. And then, and then I've had other times they're like, look, they're wrong. Look, I don't know what they're shooting at, but they ain't even hitting the barn. They're wrong. We need that. That takes humility, doesn't it? But on the other side, there has to be patience. You have to have tremendous patience as you deal with people. Paul wrote this to the Thessalonian church. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. You know what admonish the idle means? It literally means rebuke the ones that are wrong. Encourage the faint-hearted is to literally give courage to those that are fatigued. Uh, sometimes people have sinned against us uh, just willfully, openly. They're selfish. Uh, maybe they weren't thinking of it as personal sin. They're just living their life of selfishness. And, and living life of selfishness is a little bit like bumper cars. You're going to hit somebody eventually. And so they just hit us. Maybe they weren't aiming for you, but they got you. And, and you've got to go and have this hard conversation with them. Encourage the faint-hearted, though, is somebody that they're just so tired. This is like somebody they bumped into you because they're falling asleep with the switch. They're still sinning there, and it's still wrong. But, man, they're weary, and they need somebody to come alongside them and help to lift up weary hands and straighten pads, Hebrews 12 kind of language. But then there's also the help the weak. Uh, the way that Paul systematically uses the word weak there is to talk about immature people. Sometimes people sin against you, and they create relational conflict because, frankly, they're being a baby. And I'm not trying to be mean here, but they're immature as a Christian. They're immature as a person. And, and immature people live entitled, and, and they live selfish. And when, when I'm... My areas of immaturity are always going to come out in ways that demand me. I'm the most important person in that room. My needs are most important. My wants are most important. And it's immaturity. And so all of these, that, they need instruction, right? Sometimes you've got to come along somebody and say, look, I don't know if you know that this is what you're doing, but this is what's happening. And they need some help. They need some instruction. But look at the guardrail for all of them. Be patient with them. That is so hard for me right um i yeah you know, I, I i i told you a few weeks ago patience is difficult and so there's there's a part of me i'm like i want to tell you once and then change but that's not jesus's plan and i'm really grateful he doesn't treat me that way isn't it funny how thankful we can be sometimes for god's treatment of us and be so reluctant to give it to others paul had been so patient with them Four times he's addressed this issue with these folks. He made travel changes just to deal with it, spending his own time, money, resources. He pursued them despite them sinning against him personally. It's like they keep taking shots at him, and Paul just keeps coming. He's the energizer bunny when it comes to spiritual pursuit. He endures their disobedience to them. He's trying to teach them, and they're not listening. Like I, I, you know, I've talked to my kids, and they, they'll talk about, Sometimes things that go in their classroom, and I know this for a fact. God has not called me to be a middle school teacher. I mean, I would wear a kid out. 
Paul just keeps on keeping on. He endured despite physical danger. He actually packs up in order to get closer to find out the report from Titus and goes to a more dangerous area in Macedonia just because he's so affectionate about the Corinthians and wants to get a good report and he's affectionate about Titus. Paul shows patience time after time after time. Paul's patient with them, even being honest about the afflictions he experiences, the hurt that he's experienced. Paul opens his life up and he basically says to them, you guys have hurt me very deeply. You know, don't you think there'd be a temptation for Paul once they finally kick the guy out of the church to ignore all the personal hurt? I'm just going to be happy they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. But there's enough patience and humility in Paul to keep pressing forward. And so how do I walk this road? Understanding sorrow and kindness and with patience and humility. Well, then I think just as a passing by, when do I walk this road? When do I actually go down this road? And, and I say this because some of us are aware of this reality of Proverbs 17.9. It says this, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. And so sometimes people twist that passage. Let me give you the two common ways we twist that passage. When it, the start it says, whoever covers an offense. And so they say, it's okay, everything then falls under that. I'm covering up. I don't need to have that hard conversation. See, I'm so loving. I can just endure it. I can put up with it. It's no big deal. No big deal. It's killing them. They're, it's no big deal. Because they don't want that painful valley road of repentance. And, and they want to claim that. And then the other one, he who repeats a matter separates close friends. And so then that sometimes when a person isn't repentant and it's grief unto worldly that leads to death. And they're like, you see, I don't want to bring it up again because it's going to cause a problem. But there hasn't been repentance. Let's just put that in a like, far-off illustration to help us out. That would be like this guy, and he's addicted to bank robbing. Like, he just robs banks. He's, he's like hitting um, BB&T. Now he's excited because it's truest. Please quit sending me mail, by the way. I mean, you got to be kidding me. I get it. It's truest now. Um, but he's like, I hit BB&T. Now I get to hit SunTrust. Now I'm going to hit Truist. And next week, I'm going to hit Wells Fargo. And, and the cops catch him, and they sit down with him. The guy's like, man, I'm sorry. I shouldn't rob any more banks. This is really bad. This is really bad. And turns out one of the cops is, is, is like his brother. And it's like they got this relationship. It's awkward. It's hard. The guy does a little bit of time. comes right back out. He's like, oh, now I'm going to hit Citibank. Do you expect that cop to bring it up again? Or to be like, man, I'd hate to separate close friends on this. That dude ain't repentant. You don't have an option but to bring it up again. Paul keeps bringing it up because it hasn't been dealt with. They're not moving forward and the relationship can't be restored. But I, I think we know that text. Or, or I think we also know the reality is when we do life with other people, we need to forbear. And so sometimes people sin against us and we cover it with the gospel love. And we're like, man, I'm just not going to confront everything. Can you imagine... It, it, what, just think about Jesus and the disciples. Jesus is perfect. He's God in the flesh. He's living with these very imperfect people. Do you think Jesus confronted every single thing that they did wrong? There's no way. He was kind to them, and he did life with them, and he loved them. And some of that you can tell because of the way they actually interact with him. Their boldness toward Jesus betrays the reality. Jesus didn't pick on every little thing. I mean, Jesus knew their hearts. He, he, he could exercise his omniscience at any moment. So they could like, be sitting there eating dinner and just be like, Peter, Peter, pass the bread before you take the bread. 
You know you're being selfish right now. James, James, quit guzzling your water like you're about to die of thirst, and you're doing it just to infuriate John, your brother. We all know it. Knock it off. Mary, would you quit being so irritated that no one's helping you? Do you think that's what life was like with Jesus? No. Hasn't God been kind to you in your own sanctification walk? He doesn't hit you with everything at once, does he? Like, it feels like as a Christian, you're always working on something, because you are. But he doesn't dump Niagara Falls on you at once. And so we know the reality is when we do relationships with people, we can't pick on every single thing. Or we, we see sin going on in someone's life, or maybe it's even relationally with us, but they don't want our input. They are not interested in our investment. I like how Ed Welch puts it. He says, the hardest sins to confront are those we see someone commit, but we receive no invitation to speak. And so when do you actually walk down this hard road? I'll just give you three guidelines from Scripture. First of all, repentance is for sin, not preference. Someone does not need to repent for disappointing you, disagreeing with you charitably, not following your preferences on liberty issues, or speaking truth that offended you. Make sure there's room in your relationships for a unity that doesn't require unanimity. A good guideline is simply asking this, did Jesus actually die for this? You know, it's interesting, the Corinthians were not willing up until this point to repent for a lack of church discipline, for selfishness at communion, for an abuse of their spiritual gifts. But you know what they were angry about? Is people exercising their Christian liberty wrong in their minds. They had it totally flipped. They made the big things unimportant and made less important things really big deals good guideline is this is repentance is for sin not preference secondarily not every sin carries the same weight the reality is jesus didn't confront everything with the people he lived with we're commanded to forbear as we deal with other people we're, we're told in ephesians galatians to forgive and to forbear forbear is putting up with people And so there are things we just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lovingly just live the gospel with this person and understand that this is not big enough to deal with or call them to repent over in this moment. Now, here's the caveat. This is how you need to be careful. Don't ever think that way about your sin. Don't ever, if you're, if you're like right now, because maybe, maybe it might be the Holy Spirit's convicting you right now. And you remembering something you did. You remember a harsh tone, an ugly word, a selfish moment. And right now you're experiencing some conviction. And your temptation is going to be this. See, that's one that they should just forbear. <laughs> when you demonstrate a willingness to minimize your sin, you are revealing a lack of personal humility and repentance. And so while you, as someone has offended you, you may choose to look past that. You may choose in this moment to forbear this. Don't ever think that way about your sin. And so how, how do we know then? A good guideline is asking, is this sin doing real harm to the relationship? Is this damaging the relationship? Matthew 18, you go to someone who's offended you, because there's, there's going to be a severing of the relationship. 
Listen, in other words, you can think of it this way. If I don't deal with this issue, it's going to be a breach. Then deal with the issue. If I don't deal with this issue, I'm not going to trust them. I'm going to avoid them. I'm going to ignore them. I'm not going to want to serve them. I'm going to doubt them. Deal with it. Go to them and deal with it. If it's complex, and I can't deal with every possible situation because life and relationships are complex, and almost every time I've preached or taught on repentance, I've had folks come to me later and say, how do I deal with this difficult relationship? And I just want you to know that's expected and that's normal. Sometimes we need outside help to help us discern, is this something I need to go down this road with? Thirdly, thirdly, is this about you or is this about you about them? The ones harmed the most by sin is first God and then actually them. They will give an account. They will answer to God. They will experience his justice. We enter into these difficult conversations about repentance for their good and the glory of God. Lots of times we can endure things done against us and we think we can keep on enduring instead of dealing with the sin against us or or even against other people because because we don't want to go there and the reality is our refusal to deal with it is selfish because we don't love them enough to help them or or on the other hand we can make it all about us and these conversations are so i can get my pound of flesh you hurt me i'm gonna hurt you back and so ask is this about you or is about them repentance is for sin not preference Not every sin carries the same weight. Is this about you or about them? Why does Paul bring the issue to bear about the direction toward him? Because it has breached the relationship. It has severed the relationship with him. He cannot minister to them effectively with what is going on and what has happened. I'd encourage you to think, is this a pattern in their life? If it's a pattern in their life, it's going to affect many people. It's going to keep coming up and coming up and coming up. That's going to tell you there hasn't been repentance and there hasn't been growth. I think one of the most difficult conversations I ever had was years and years ago. I had a close friend come and confront me. And when they came and confronted me, they began giving me objective examples of where they had seen this sin in my life. And there were so many examples they gave. At at one point, I just looked at them and I said, how long have you seen this in my life? And it was like, 18 months, a year and a half, they had watched me do this over and over and over again. And do you know there was a power in it in that moment? Because they also knew me well enough to know my temptation would have been to minimize the sin. Like none of the, none of the individual instances, frankly, seem like that big of a deal. But the overwhelming totality of them helped me to see the real weight of it. It helped me to see their patience, their kindness. All of that didn't happen in the moment. Please don't think that that I'm that spiritual. I had all kinds of justification, all kinds of anger, and I thought all kinds of evil against them. It took some time, and I'm so thankful for their Paul-like patience in dealing with me. It was so clear to me, they didn't come to me because it hurt them. They didn't come to me because it made them feel better. They didn't come to me to get it off of their chest. It was so clear to me when I reflected on it, and frankly, the Spirit's help and illumination that they did this because they deeply loved me and they wanted to help me. That's a good friend, folks. Are you that kind of friend? 
And do you have those friendships and do you cultivate them? And so then, what will the road be like? What will it actually be like when we walk down this road? And so I want to key in in this moment on what repentance is like. You know, we learned last week that it's more than admitting that it's wrong. And so we're going to look at good old JTB. You're like, JTB, John the Baptist, right? So good old JTB, we had Luke here. So you want to go there because the text is way too small for you to see on the screen anyhow. But Luke 3, and I want to key off of something. Last week I pointed out how he looked at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They start coming down to the city and they want to be baptized. And it was a baptism for repentance, a show of cleansing. And John the Baptist says, no, bring me fruits of repentance and then I'll baptize you. Let's read the fuller context. Luke 3, 7, all the way down through verse 14. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. I just want to pause there for a moment because there is a common um, justification we'll use to not deal with our sin there. And the justification is my sin has already been dealt with, so I don't have to deal with this sin. God's already forgiven me. Why do I need to repent? God has already forgiven Like, we'll, there's no show of hands here. I always have to prep that because sometimes you, people are in the sermon, you ask questions, they're like, oh, me, and it's an embarrassing moment. So no hands here. You ever done a sin and you know it's against somebody? And you're convicted. The heavy weight of God is on you. And so you ask God to forgive you. You do. You're like, God, forgive me. That's wrong. You own it. And then you convince yourself, God's forgiven me. I don't have to go back and have that with them. Because that's going to be an ugly moment, isn't it? You ever do that? Okay, so it's you and me and whoever else wants to climb on that bus with us in honesty this morning. That's how these guys thought. What do I need to repent for? I'm a child of Abraham. Even now, verse 9, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That should sound very familiar. That's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount language. That's Jesus' John 15 language. So those guys leave. The rest of the crowd is still there. The crowds asked him, then what shall we do? What do you think they're asking? What do fruits of repentance look like for us? He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. You know what he's saying? Love your neighbor more than you. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. What then are the fruits of repentance? Because that's what he has just explained to all these people. Let me give it to you in one phrase. Fruits of repentance are practical steps to love God and others where previously there was sin. If you go back through that text, we don't have time this morning, Every single one of these things he's identified is exactly how they sinned. This is why Zacchaeus, the guy who's robbing people, when he gets saved, he pays back people four times what he stole from them. It's the first thought on his head. The woman who has been given to prostitution, when she repents and gets saved, instead of going to Jesus as another man to sell her body to, to get something from, she goes simply and sacrifices the most expensive thing she has. This perfume pours it out. It's wasted in the ground just to worship. Worship before has been about me. Worship now is about Jesus, the woman at the well, John chapter 4. She's run from the city, now she goes back to the city to proclaim the Messiah. 
fruits of repentance are going to be practical steps to love God and others where previously there was sin. So then, what about the Corinthians? What would we look for? And when we begin to see this, we are asking this question, are they there yet? Took a trip to Florida a couple years ago. We literally were still on 26, hadn't even hit 77, and I got my first question as we're traveling to Florida, Daddy, are we there yet? I said, watch the movie. And that question is banned. We got eight hours in this car together. No, we have not arrived. I've noticed the temptation in my heart, and so I share this with you. Uh, this is one of those moments, it, this is just pure, pure, unadulterated experience in working through conflict with people in my own life and trying to help others. Most people are way too quick to believe there's repentance because they want the hurt to stop. Most people are way too quick to say, oh yes, I forgive you. Yes, we're good. You ever had your child do something you send them to go ask somebody's forgiveness and they go and ask forgiveness and the person says, oh, that's no big deal. Please don't say that to children. Because if their parent has sent them to you, their parent is teaching them this is a big deal. And in that moment, what do you communicate to them? Mom and dad make a bigger deal out of sin than there is. Instead, you graciously listen. You lovingly and caringly ask. Make sure they understand it. They see it. They know it. And you express kindness to them and restoration. But most of us, most of us, there's some significant relational breach. We're way too quick to say, oh, we've arrived. There's the sheer fact that they're crying. The sheer fact that they see it. The sheer fact that they're saying it. That means they're repentant. We just studied last week. No, it doesn't. It's very clear there are fruits or not fruits. Are we there yet? How would we know? Well, guess what the text gives us? These seven descriptors are Corinthians fruits. So let me read them, then we'll just walk through them. And we can apply them in our own lives. For see, verse 11, 2 Corinthians 7, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Now, here's what's fascinating. If you had time this week, you'd be able to do this. If you go back and you study those words and how they show up in Paul's literature and in the first and second Corinthians, you can actually identify exactly why he chose those words. Paul just isn't whipping out adjectives, right? Like he's got he's to dress this up like it's some English assignment. Every one of these means something important. First of all, eagerness. It's a diligent pursuit of a change of direction. How do you determine eagerness as a fruit of repentance? Time plus direction equals eagerness. Time plus direction. And so when someone first comes and they ask forgiveness, you may see in that moment direction. What needs to happen with it is time. Now what you and I have to be careful with is to not stand back and play judge and think we're Jesus, and think we know and see everything. That's why it's actually important to have restored relationship so you can ongoing see the work of God in their life. And I want you to know that when you repent from something, you may see the sin at that moment, but this is the way repentance works. It grows in your life as you move forward. You will have a much better comprehension of the depth, effect, and depravity of your sin a year from now than you do right now. But time 
plus direction because literally the word means diligence. Paul saw that they were diligent to keep going the other direction. It wasn't a one and done. It wasn't here crocodile tears. Time plus direction equals eagerness. Man, it's easy in my flesh. As hard as it is, it's easy to ask forgiveness for something and think I've dealt with it and not do anything else and convince my heart that I've dealt with it. But I haven't. This is why it's important that Paul recognizes they haven't gone in the cycle that leads to death because he's seen eagerness. Secondarily, he says there's indignation. There is a hatred of the sin. There's a despise of it. Can this person articulate and maintain a hatred of sin? God hates sin, and as you repent, you will grow in your hatred of sin. These people could honestly own it. The message comes back to him from Titus. He knows exactly how they now see their sin. Uh, you might remember 2 Corinthians 2. They disciplined this guy of the church. They have such a despise now for sin they associate this man with the sin, that they're at a spot where they don't want to welcome him back regardless, even though he's repentant. They have come to such a purified hatred of sin. Listen, you can't love holiness and not hate sin. And as you grow in holiness, your hatred of sin increases and abounds. And so when you're repenting or someone else is repenting, you should be looking for, can they articulate, can they maintain, can they honestly, openly be just communicative about what their sin is and about why it's so bad. Thirdly, he says there's a fear. Well, Paul has used this language with them lots, and and his fear for them was that they didn't see the real consequences of their sin. They didn't realize they were going to miss out. It's not that Paul thought so much of himself. It's very clear he didn't. He saw himself as a very broken vessel, but he saw himself as a broken vessel that God wanted to use in their life. And he knew with their sin, they were distancing themselves from being able to receive through God's vessel, broken vessel, his truth. And so Paul knew there was a consequence to their sin. Fear, can they comprehend the cost of their sin toward God, others, and themselves? One of the best exercises I ever did, like, like 20 years ago or something, 15 years ago, and someone confronted me about fear of man. And I just went, and I, and I just, I took a literally a legal pad and just started writing every consequence in my life that I could see towards myself, towards my relationship with God, or toward other people, that my fear of man, how it worked out in my life. Every single consequence. And when I got done the list, I asked my wife, what other, here's my, what other consequences do you see? And then I went and asked my buddy Aaron Coffey, what other consequences do you see in my life? Then I asked my buddy Will Gawker, what other consequences, till I had literally two sheets full of consequences, because I was blind to it. And I wanted to hate it. I wanted to see what the real cost would be. I say that, that's 15 years ago. Do you know how many people had tried to confront me over fear of man before that moment? I couldn't even count how many. It wasn't like Steve suddenly had arrived. That was the moment God had chosen to grant me repentance and to open my eyes and my heart. When we're repentant, we comprehend the cost of sin. Does this person really get it? Longing. He says that they have this longing. 
What is the longing? They long to be restored in relationship with him. Does this person long to have restored relationship? It's going to take work to restore relationship. It took work to destroy, but that's fast work. Deconstruction is always way quicker than construction. Are they willing to put in the work to rebuild? Do they put, act, put in actively to rebuild what their sin tore down? Where I've used distance to hurt somebody in sin, there must now be closeness. Where I've used harshness, there must now be kindness. Where I've used selfishness, there must now be loving sacrifice. Where I've used stealing, there must now be giving. Where I've used lying, there must now be truth speaking. Because I long for relate. That's what we do when we're repentant. We have this deep longing. He goes on, he says, what punishment. This is interesting because the word, I told you last week, it literally means justice. Does this person pursue any necessary justice in this matter? Let's go back to our bank robbing friend. Truist, BB&T, SunTrust, Wells Fargo City. Do you think he could repent and not repay what he stole? Uh uh-uh. uh. Like, I've had people tell me before, um, well, God says that He'll restore what the locusts have eaten. And I'm like, I literally can hear the Bible screaming as you rip that verse out of context. Sometimes, our, and this is hard, but our sins aren't as easy as money to repay. It's not as easy as a candy bar we stole, right? We've hurt people's names and reputations. We've damaged relationship and trust. And that takes far more to restore. But a sense of justice recognizes we have a just God. And when we're repentant and we're demonstrating repentance, we pursue justice. We pursue making right what we have made wrong. A repentant person wants truth to prevail. They don't try to hide it. They don't try to mask it. They don't try to minimize it. It's not about their opinion. It's not about their name. It's not about people being on their side. It's about God's truth and God's justice to be supreme. There's been times people have sinned against me personally, and what I want is I want to get a team on my side that sides with me. That's not justice. Instead, we want objective truth to reign when repentant and then last lastly here they're proven innocent now this is fascinating this is not a denial of the sin <laughs> because they've owned it all the way through so what does it mean to have been proven innocent it's such a running from the sin so that they'll never go back to it the corinthians are no longer going to tolerate and participate in the sin denying apostle accusing immorality in the church ignoring disobedience to god It's a holistic and total, not partial repentance. They're saying we will discipline this man. But it's not that we'll discipline this man, but we won't deal with the false accusers. No, they're saying we're going to deal with all of the mess. We'll discipline this man, but we won't own our sin against you, Paul. No, we'll discipline this man and we'll own our sin against you, Paul. See, when you're repentant, you start taking care of all kinds of mess, not just a little bit. You should think of repentance in an Ephesians 4 sanctification manner where we're told to put off and put on. Stop lying, speak truth, stop stealing, start earning and giving. If we put 2 Corinthians 7 here, Luke 3 with John the Baptist, 
and Ephesians 4 together, we really begin to understand repentance, fruits of repentance, are practical steps that love God and others where previously there was sin. It leads us to destination restoration. Repentance means there's hope. There will always be sorrow in this world with sin. There will always be hurt. And this will always be a hard path to take. But I just want you to know what repentance says. Repentance says that God can heal wounds. Repentance says that he can be the balm of Gilead and wipe away tears from eyes. Repentance says that you can have a broken relationship and experiencing healing. See, repentance is at the core of the gospel, isn't it? We are enemies of God, and now we're made sons and daughters. How? Through the sacrifice of Jesus, us putting our faith in that, and turning from our sin and following him. So what does it say in our homes and in our friendships and in our community when we don't do this? It says sin's not that big a deal. You know what happens when sin isn't that big of a deal? You don't need Jesus to deal with it. It says relationships can be shallow and exist broken. The gospel says relationships should be restored and whole and holy. Repentance, when we do it rightly, communicates to our children that you'll sin against us and we'll sin against you, but we can let our relationship not defi be defined by sin, but by God's grace and forgiveness. Repentance says that Jesus is bigger. When I'm convicted over my sin, instead of hiding, minimizing, failing to deal with it, repentance says Jesus is more important than my humiliation of having to confess and be honest. It says Jesus' forgiveness is more valuable to me than denying what I've done to you. You ever been in a spot where someone sins against you and they just won't own it? Look, in every fiber of your being, God knows they sinned, you know they sinned, and honestly, you're pretty convinced they know they sinned. But they just won't confess and deal with it. You feel crazy, don't you? You know how many people I sit with and I talk to and I say, you're not crazy for hurting. Can we covenant together we won't do that to one another? That when we sin, we'll deal with it? We'll repent? Can we covenant together that we'll deal kindly and patiently with people, with sorrow and kindness, with humility and grace? Repentance shows those who have sinned, we have sinned against, and others who are watching, that the power of the gospel that could raise the dead is strong enough to heal the wounds that we cause. Repentance is a journey, and I call you to that journey. And I just want you to know, as someone preaching it, I don't always do a good job walking that road. And, and every example I've given from my life, even from the past, I fight to this day. You'll never arrive till we get to heaven. We'll have to walk this together. But let's walk through dark valleys with the shepherd by our side as we journey toward greener pastures. Father, we thank you for giving us a way and a means to deal with broken relationships. 
And we ask this morning, humbly, Father, as a congregation, as a people, that this would be the rule in our friendships and our church relationships. This would be the rule in our neighborhoods and our families and our marriages and our parenting. That we walk the path of repentance. And we thank you, Father, that even this moment as very broken people, we can ask you to forgive us. And we can experience restoration with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.